0: Hey, everybody, welcome back. Welcome to episode 10 of 10 Minute History. And today we are going to talk a little bit about the Cold War, and we're going to get really specifically into one of my very favorite stories in history to ever tell. Something that very few people have ever heard of called Operation Little Vittles. That's right, Little Vittles. Well, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's talk about what's happening right at the end of World War II. Uh, there really aren't too many empires left. Germany gets destroyed and conquered in World War II. So does Japan. Uh, The British were broke and their empire is already starting to falter at this point. They're going to lose India in only three years. And the French had been occupied for six years. So really all that's left in the world is the Soviet Union and the United States. Coincidentally, two major empires with massive amounts of territory and resources that are diametrically opposed in terms of their government systems and their ideologies. So this is what's going to start nearly a 50-year struggle between communism and the expansion of communism and non-communism and efforts to contain or to stop it. This was the battle that I grew up in, that I lived in from 1968 to 1991. Well, uh, after World War II, things start to move quickly. The Soviets expanded into Eastern Europe. They had occupied large swaths of countries from Poland all the way down to Romania. And they simply put communist governments in place and said, this is what the government here is going to be. And so now they had all these communist satellite countries that are going to make up the Warsaw Pact, or what some people called the Eastern Bloc. Then there were non-communist countries like West Germany and Denmark and France and Austria and Italy. Okay, countries that were non-communist in nature who are going to form the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, along with the United States and other allies, to protect democracy in Western Europe. And the dividing line in between, Winston Churchill referred to as the Iron Curtain. So now we have a divided Europe and a divided Germany, as well as a divided Berlin. Berlin, the German capital, five million people that lived in this city. It would look very much, actually, if you were to fly over it, it would look very much in size, about about like Los Angeles. It was sprawling. It was huge. And it had been bombed to smithereens during the war and then divided in half by the Soviets and the other Western allies. So if you go to Berlin back in those times, it's surrounded by communist East Germany and hundreds of thousands of Russian troops. It's an island to itself. It's a democratic little place in the middle of East Germany with three highways and three rail lines leading to West Germany as part of the agreement that ended the war at Potsdam. So you're a West Berliner. You live in free territory. You're just surrounded on all sides by communist East Germany and a whole bunch of Russians. And if you wanted to go to West Germany, where you weren't so threatened, you could just hop on one of those trains or hop on one of those highways and follow those straight over to West Germany. So, what happens in 1948 is kind of set up the first real round of the Cold War. This competition over ideas, communism or non-communism, between the Soviet Union and the United States, where we competed for influence in these countries, but we never actually fought each other. By 1949, both the United States and the Soviet Union had atomic weapons, and so it was important we never came to an actual shooting war with each other, because that could very quickly get out of hand. So instead, we competed in all sorts of indirect ways, sometimes violently and sometimes not. And one of the first rounds of that conflict, that competition, came in Berlin. The Soviets admitted to themselves, privately, that they had made a mistake by even allowing West Berlin to remain non-communist. It's like this little dagger right in the middle, this thorn in their side. And so they said, I wonder if the Americans would really fight for that they just finished a war three years ago. they just sent all their guys home. They just had spent a bunch of money. Surely they wouldn't send an army back to fight over this, over a German city, no less. So rather than invading West Berlin, rather than starting World War III, they simply took some Russian tanks, some old T-34s, and they parked them across all of those highways and rail lines. They closed all of the ground access into West Berlin. Now, West Berlin has two and a half million people back in these days. So, I mean, cutting off a city like Chicago or Los Angeles from any ground support at all meant that those trains full of coal, full of food, full of wheat, full of gasoline, none of those supplies could make it into the city. They're by themselves. And if you were a West Berliner at this time, if you were a West German living in Berlin, then, then you were terrified. Because the Russians had done horrible things to the rest of East Germany when they had come in. And now you're surrounded and you're just depending on whether the Americans will come and save you. So the Soviets simply park their tanks. They shut down all of the supplies coming in and they wait. They just wait and see what the Americans will do. Well, President Truman isn't having it. President Truman, he practices the Truman Doctrine that we're going to help countries to resist the expansion of communism, usually with weapons, but in this case, with food. And he implements a policy where we're going to now fly on these giant C-54 cargo planes. We're going to fly all the supplies that West Berlin needs for as long as they need it. Now, that's a bold statement. Two and a half million people, and you're going to fly in everything they need on these little rickety propeller airplanes? That's a lot of flights. That's a lot of planes. That's a lot of stuff. And how long are you prepared to do this? Because all the Russians have to do down there is sit on their tanks and eat sandwiches and wait. That's it. So the Americans start to arrive. The C-54s start to bring in supplies. They're landing at Berlin's Tempelhof Airport, which is now all fenced off and barbed wire. And the effort just starts to pick up steam. So now every single day and every single hour and most of the minutes of that hour you have these flights landing and these planes being quickly unloaded, refilled, turned around, and sent back. On the southern highway that was the avenue in which all the planes would fly into Tempelhof. On the northern highway that was the avenue on which all the planes would fly back to West Germany. So you had this continually rotating cycle of planes coming through. Once it really got rolling a plane was landing at Tempelhof about every two minutes. Now, these pilots are bringing in the food and everything that West Berliners need, and they're watching these flights land every day, and they almost can't believe it. Like, I thought we were done for. I thought the Russians were going to take this place, and that was going to be that. But no, the Americans show up and start to bring them everything they need, and the flights just keep coming. Well, when you did these flights, man, you were flying sometimes two or three of these a day, and it's a lot of flying time, and these C-54s weren't very comfortable, and so your legs would hurt. And so there was one particular commander, a, a guy named Gail Halverson. And Gail Halverson, he, uh, he, he would get out of his plane and he would smoke a cigarette like most people did. And you got to walk away from your plane while they're fueling in order to smoke the cigarette. And so he would just kind of do a loop. He, he would just walk around the outside of this airfield in West Berlin and stretch his legs. And he had just about enough time to make the circuit before he got back. Now he's refueled and he heads home. Well, he's walking along and he's smoking and he's minding his own business, pretty much thinking about the flight, whatever he's thinking about. And he comes across the end of the, the airfield right there where this fence is at. And on the other side, on top of this bombed out stack of rubble is 30 emaciated little West Berlin school kids, just 30 young kids. I'm talking like four, five, six, seven years old. And they're sitting down on these cement blocks on this rubble and they're just watching the planes come in because this is the coolest thing ever, right? For a little kid. And then they see him. They see Gail Halverson as he starts to walk close to their edge. They make eye contact. And now Halverson freezes. He's like, oh, no, I'm toast. They've seen me. Right. And so they jump up to the fence and they're all just like holding on to the fence and they're yelling at him in German and stuff. And he's like, I know they want candy or something like that, but I don't have anything. And he's feeling through his pockets. And he reaches into his his cigarette pocket, where he keeps his smokes usually, and he notices that the only thing he has on him besides cigarettes is two sticks of spearmint gum. That's all he's got. So he takes the spearmint gum and he hands it through the wire. Now, you would think if you handed two sticks of gum through and there's 30 kids on the other side of the wire, that there's going to be a brawl and it's going to be survival of the fittest and they're going to get the two sticks of gum. But that's not what happened. The kids made a circle, these 30 kids like made a circle in the rubble and they took the two sticks of gum and they divided it up into little bits. They just took little tiny bites of it and they passed it around so that everybody could get some. Okay. And then they took the spearmint paper and they were licking the spearmint paper to get a little bit of the flavoring off of there. Unbelievable, right? And Halverson was like almost in tears. He's like, it was two sticks of gum. He's like, I got Hershey bars back in my base. So now the next time that he came in, he was like Santa Claus, man. He's throwing out Hershey bars from his Red Cross packages. He's giving them all sorts of stuff. Sweet. He feels great. Goes back for another round right there. Gets the rations from some of his cohorts back at the base. And he's giving these out. Now the next time he comes up to the wire, he notices there's a thousand kids. The word has gotten out. And now there was kids everywhere. Oops. So this isn't going to do it. And in fact, the commander of the base says, what are you doing to me, man? Do you realize how difficult this mission is? And now you've got this security problem on the other end because you wanted to be Santa Claus. Dude, knock it off. No more walks around the the airport during your breaks. So Halverson just kind of says, no, no, I don't think so. He goes back to his base and he takes some handkerchiefs and he ties the candy rations to the handkerchiefs like little parachutes. Then the next time he's flying in, he opens up his window and he throws out the parachutes to the kids. So these little parachute candy bombs are dropping down on the rubble and the kids are going nuts for these things. And when they find some candy, they're taking it home to their parents. And check it out, the Americans are not only bringing us all the food and stuff we need, but they're also giving chocolate to the kids. You can't buy that kind of PR, man. Unbelievable. So, of course, now this story story takes on a life of its own. Back home, people hear about Colonel Gale, Seymour Hal Halverson, who's now handing out candy to the poor, unfortunate kids of West Berlin, and, uh, and they just fall in love with him. Life magazine writes a story about him. Uh, suddenly, groups all over the United States start like uh, sewing handkerchiefs for him to use and collecting donations to donate candy so that he and now the rest of his squadron can start dropping these chocolate bombs all over the West Berlin kids. And before it was all over, believe it or not, this whole episode's going to last basically an entire year. And during that time, Hal Halverson and his pals ended up dropping 23 tons of candy to the kids of West Berlin. The Soviets, after a year, gave up, said, I guess they're committed enough to this. They pulled their tanks off the road. The roads reopened and the supplies rushed in and West Berlin remained non-communist for the rest of the Cold War. Just one very small human example of what was happening in the midst of this great Cold War and this connection between one American pilot and thousands of West Berlin kids. That's our story today. We'll catch up with you next time on the next episode of 10 Minute History.